Hello and welcome to another episode of Harder Not Smarter, where we dive into the world of veteran entrepreneurship, military transitions, and cultivating an unbreakable mindset. This show is hosted by former Navy SEAL Kevin Seif and yours truly, former Green Beret, Greg Van Dyne. Join me in welcoming Tyler Schmoker, founder and principal at Winsley, a coaching, consulting, and advisory services firm. Prior to founding Winsley, Tyler spent two decades as a Fortune 500 consultant, security industry executive, professional soldier, and paramilitary advisor. Tower's experience spans the globe, from Iraq and Afghanistan to the Korean DMZ. In this episode, we'll explore how he found his way into paramilitary work, his experience leading troops during Hurricane Katrina, how he's used an unconventional approach to social media to propel his career, and his journey into full-time entrepreneurship. We'll also dive into topics like failing forward, living inside the arena, staying true to oneself, and Tower's recent dance with the devil at the Arrowhead 135. This was a truly thought-provoking discussion with hands down one of the most interesting guys on LinkedIn. So without further ado, let's kick things off. We're just going to roll right into this thing and start recording. And, uh, okay. Raw is better anyway. Yeah, it's uh, a little bit more free-flowing. And uh, we'll just kind of let the, the conversation <laughs> take yeah, us we, wherever we really, it takes we us. We really today. don't edit it. We're just like at a start point and then we just kind of let it, let it go from there and and uh and see what happens with the conversation it makes it makes it much more entertaining and uh natural well i live i live my whole life that way so <laughs> i mean we in, in the teams fine. we used to always say um you know that'll that'll buff out you come in with a, mm-hmm. a decent enough plan and then the rest of it you just figure it out on the way it'll uh 80 20 it'll sort itself out Oh, I don't even think 80. I'd say 70% is good enough. <laughs> send it. Kevin's sending it. He doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. Well, yeah. 70, 70% is still a passing score. It's first time go. Carry on to the next evolution. I was definitely a kid with the uh, the, the ghetto rigged plywood ramp. Like, yeah, this seems safe. Let's, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Same. <laughs> same. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure having you on here. Um, I'm excited to hear a little bit more about you. I know Greg's been sending me bits of uh, details about some of the stuff you're into. It sounds like you know you've you've done the international man of mystery thing since actually probably even during the the military. It looks like you did some reserve time while doing uh, paramilitary work and uh, fractional CRO, and then also hikes across the the tundra. Yeah, so I didn't I didn't follow a a normal pipeline, but I'm not really a normal guy. So when I look back on it retrospectively, it, it kind of makes sense for me, but it's, you know, it's a little bit for other people to unpeel. So typically it requires a little bit of explanation. So obviously first off, happy to be on with you guys and have the opportunity to articulate some of the the madness that I put out into the world on social <laughs> media from, from a real from a real person and demonstrate that I, you know, I probably can't capitalize and punctuate and put together full <laughs> thoughts. I, I just don't tend to do it. In my social media content. <laughs> yeah, grammar's for Greg's wife. No one else needs to worry yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Field, field expedient, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of actually an interesting tool that I use to be able to stay as long as I have. It's like, well, if I can churn this out pretty quickly and, and get a point across and, and do it in 10 minutes, it's like when I see people fall off after 90 days of 
you know, trying and failing. It's like, well, I have staying power. And and probably some people are like, well, when's this guy just going to get out of here with all of his nonsense? <laughs> I'm like, well, I've got my systems in place. It's too easy and sustainable now. So you're probably stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm entrenched now. I could pick Tyler's content out from a lineup easy. It's just, it's so, it's so distinguishable. And I think the Is first it? time that I, that I came across your content, it was like you in like, I don't know, maybe some Ranger panties running up a hill and running up and down a hill, like not a big hill, but just like trying to get some elevation in. And uh, man, I was like, oh, I got to follow this guy. <laughs> So is 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 it the the footage that he puts in there? Is it the style of his writing? Is it the the whole package? You're just like it's, as soon as you start reading it, you're like, this is this is Tyler. Yeah, it's both. Yeah, it's like you, you he uses emojis and like I don't know. There, there's just like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like you'll you'll be like, okay, that's Tyler Smoker. Like, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I, I I'm probably gonna quote you on that very soon in, in a piece of content. <laughs> once you see it, you can't unsee it. So it's it's interesting. You know, I talked about it, you know, a little bit where some of it started out as kind of field expediency, right? Rather than following anyone else's template. You know, I knew from, I, I'm big on return on effort investment, ROEI, right? And it's like, so carousels were big for a while, but I see people basically packing like 10 posts into a carousel and, and it looks like a grad research paper. It's like, you know, maybe they get a hundred clicks off of it or 200 clicks off of it. And I get a hundred clicks, but I know they're putting four or five hours into that. And if I'm cranking something out in 10 minutes, it's like, that's going to be my space where I can still touch people and, and, you know, do so on a decent return on effort investment so that I'm not burning out. And, you know, I'm one of those people that, you know, just disappear or whatever, but you know, and I also integrate... describe real quick what it is that that you do. I know on on LinkedIn you you have guerrilla marketing and and LinkedIn um, mm-hmm. uh, optimization type stuff. Explain for for the audience what it is that that you're offering. So I do a couple of different things. So, um, kind of subsequent to my military career, where I kind of I kind of overlapped a lot of different things between military, paramilitary. And then into like Fortune 500 consulting and and specifically within the security industry, but business-based Fortune 500 consulting. Um, So I still offer that. And I would say, you know, now with my firm, that's the primary revenue generator for my business. So I'm still consulting B2B work. That's that's, Winsley? Yeah, yeah. And it it has nothing to do with... um, you know, LinkedIn content strategy or anything else like that. But then I also recently just launched a program called LinkedIn Tradecraft, which is my way to have a B2C offering that is within the LinkedIn domain. But so I don't consider myself to be a LinkedIn strategist or a LinkedIn coach. I'm a strategist and a consultant that in my 40s kind of figured out how to use LinkedIn a little bit differently. So now I offer that as a course program. So in a way, I see it as kind of a an accessible give back for people in my community on LinkedIn and in the network to be able to kind of get a piece of that and where it's really applicable. Some of those best practices from, you know, business and consulting that can be applied within their lives or within their businesses. And then there's also that shared context of LinkedIn because, you know, everyone wants their posts not to bomb and they want their content not to suck. So it's kind of a way to 
to make it a little bit accessible without like a McKinsey price tag on it for regular consulting services, essentially. So, you know, you have the low cost offer, the mid range offer, and then the, the, the premium offer, like most business models. So that's really what it's attempting to do. Very nice. What, who's your typical, like, who's been your typical customer for that offering specifically the LinkedIn um, tradecraft course? So it's more so going to be people that are a little bit on the fringes, like a little bit more disruptive creators, I would say. I very much have like a, a satirical approach to LinkedIn where um, I do make fun of people a little bit, but I, I never I never pinpoint any one person, but more just kind of around some of the tropes and things that were like, oh, brother, why is this a trend? So I'll make fun of some of that. and But I really make fun of myself probably more than anyone else on the platform too. And <laughs> You know, I get I get twice the last, but so I think that I'm really catering to that audience that, you know, they're kind of they've been around for a while and they're not looking for, you know, just the operating system of how to construct a post. They're more they they've been in the game for a little bit. Maybe they haven't leveraged the platform quite as much or scale quite as much as they'd intended to. Um but they're kind of in on the joke and some of the inside clicks and the inside politics and other stuff like that. So it's really just kind of taking a step from back from that, giving them some of like the, the psychological and sociological tools and even like the intelligence based tools and how you can apply that to LinkedIn strategy and even be an outlier and be true to yourself and what your content is, but leverage some of those proven methodologies to make it work for you. Because like Greg said before, my content style is pretty extreme and, and, and I would say still even very unique on the platform where I couldn't sell a template because if someone tried it, it would be like they're trying to rip off Tyler. And, and, and it probably only works for one person, but it doesn't work for, an, for another. But there are also best practices and, and tactics and techniques in there that people can apply to their own content and just like real doctrinal stuff that can mm -hmm. help them to scale with whatever their unique brand is. And, and I think that that's kind of a unique offering. It's like, well, follow me, just be like me, and then make sure you comment on all my posts to be seen. It's like, I feel like that's a two years ago strategy. And I think you're going to see more unique, disruptive creators, you know, like you guys as well, who are like approaching the military genre a little bit different with your content. Like you guys know some of the standard creators out there that have been around mm -hmm. for a while and they have their cult followings, but it seems like there's a contemporary audience that's really not into that. So it's like, how do you get into those contemporary audiences and, and provide a little bit different flavor? Because, I mean, there's a billion people on the platform. There's there's a slice of the pie for everyone as far as I'm concerned. Oh, my God. It's, there's, there's so much access out there with, with LinkedIn. Um, and what makes LinkedIn so such a powerful tool is that you can, especially for, for veterans, is you can see this person served in the military and not just hey, he's a veteran. He has a cool veteran logo or something. You, know, you can see like on yours, you, I can see you did 21 years in the army across these areas and you spell it out. You you were in Iraq, you were in Afghanistan, you were uh, in Korea, which I would love to chat about. I was stationed there for two years. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can see detailed information. You can build relationships with, with other veterans more so than just, hey, I was in the army, you were in the Navy, cool, let, let's have a conversation. Um, and, and so we've, we've really been able to take advantage of the, the, the breadth that LinkedIn offers a lot of veterans. Plus the one good thing tap does for veterans as they leave is to say, start a LinkedIn account. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's pretty much it, it's it's like going out there now as a business and not having a website. Like if you're trying to get a job across most industries, obviously there, there's a bunch that that especially on the the blue collar side that if you don't have a LinkedIn it doesn't matter. But for most of them, when you're when you're interviewing for a job and they look you up and you don't have a LinkedIn, like what's going on with this guy? Why why is there this this void where everyone else has has information? Um, so with yours, with the, the people you work with, what's the typical end goal that they're trying to get to? Are, you, are they trying to land more followers? Are they trying to monetize their 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 following? Are they trying to build a, a sales funnel, get people attracted to other areas? What what what's your typical yeah, state that you, it, you work with people? It's it's more it's more people who are trying to find their buyers. So sellers of something trying to find buyers as opposed to becoming you know, a full scale influencer and then a brand ambassador, because quite honestly, I mean, my network and I guess my reach isn't really influencer big, at least not, you know, in my view, but what it is, is it's pretty practical and it's pretty consistent. Like I don't have a lot of peaks and valleys. Like I keep a pretty consistent audience, even though it cycles through attrition a little bit over time, Mm -hmm. people come and go. But I've been able to stay pretty brand consistent over the course of like three years now. And so I've reached a point where I'm a point of like practical continuity on the platform to where people know that, you know, if they work with me, they know that I'm putting out practical information. I'm very much a realist to the the extent that I'll even make fun of the things that are nonsense and we can have a good time about it. That gets the people who are committing the violations to to understand that, you know, we do think it's funny and it is ridiculous to so stop doing it. Right. So helping to improve the community and, and, you know, progress it forward. And then also they know that, you know, I'm going to be here in a month or in six months or in another year. So, I mean, I'm someone that, you know, I didn't just show up with a half baked idea and say, well, I'm going to sell something now because a few people like my post. I mean, I was literally here putting out content, just free stuff, free advice and, doing like the side conversations and whatever for like two and a half years before I even thought about selling anything here. So it's like, you know, I've given to the community and like, yeah, now I do want to monetize it a little bit. And, but then I still do some things that are completely outside of LinkedIn as far as like like traditional consulting work. So it's not like I, I live and die by it. So it's kind of a unique place to be in where I can kind of plot my own path and, and choose my own trajectory. And I'm not really tied to trends. That's that's a good spot to be. You know, any anytime you don't have to feel pressured to to make sales. You know, mo- mm-hmm. most people, whether it's subconsciously or consciously, know this person's really trying to to force this. You know, when when they start getting into um, I'm trying to forget what, what the term's called with sales. Um, Zone slapping. Greg, Greg, what was Zone that? Zone Zone of Resistance. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, like, what's it called when people start saying no and you, you have, like, the, the templated responses like, well, how can we basically get it to a yes type stuff? Um, Objection like, handling? Yeah, there you go. Um, and, and so they're, they're like, they just keep going down the, these rabbit holes every time you say no. Like, well, what about this? What if I did this? Or what, what is your apprehension with this? And you're just like, man, this guy is just selling. Um, and so when, when you don't have that mentality, you just put – I do it all the time. Like, say, here's information that we have. Here's what we have to offer. We'd love to have you as part of the community, um, but if it's not right for you, if it's not right for you right now, I, I understand. You know, we'll, we'll still be here. Come by whenever. Um, and, it, and a for me, it feels much better. Like I don't have that. Uh, I need to land the sale to 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 feed my family tomorrow. 
Um, and I don't have that, that stress of, of constantly trying to pull people in instead of it's people walking in voluntarily and, and enjoying what they have here. You know, beyond, beyond that too, you know, when you start getting a little bit too pushy, like in the DMS or even like with your content and it's like, it's always about selling, you start to alienate people that are in your community, right? Because you're going to have people that engage with your content every day and are going to be your biggest fans. They're always going to be in the comments. Some of those people are never going to buy from you, mm-hmm. but they're a but they're a part of your organization and that they help amplify so that you can push out. Because I can't tell you how many people I have inquire with me that they're like, I'm a longtime reader or a longtime listener. They never like any of the stuff, but it's like, well, the views still count. And that's probably the person that eventually I might sell, you know, an eight hour trade craft course to. Right. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to the person who's like, you know, in on the joke with me every single day um, in the comments. So you, you kind of have a couple of different, you know, you're, 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 you're writing to your sales funnel, definitely, because everyone here is selling something. They can say they're not, even if it's just their own influence or their own ego or whatever. Everyone is here trying to get something out of it. And I think by and large, I think people are above board about it. So there's nothing wrong with trying to sell something or someone. We've all got to eat and we've all got to make a living and support our families. Um, but at the same time, you know, just kind of be honest about it and understand that you have different groups and, and you're you're kind of supporting the community, which is a little bit different than just selling to the community because a lot of those creators start to just go away where everything is every day. It's branded to selling whatever your thing is, your service or your product. And, and people just kind of switch it off the same way that LinkedIn switched off the corporate sponsored infomercials. That's why no one likes corporate sponsored ads because it's purely selling without a story people invest in characters they don't invest in products by and large 100 that's, that's a great way of putting it so how is the uh how's the jump into full-time entrepreneurship gone has that been a smooth transition um is this the first time that you've ever like gone off and like only mm-hmm. been consulting yep. yeah tell me about it let's talk about it so I always knew it was something I wanted to try. So my wife and I, for a lot of years, just kind of soft talked about it or whatever. And, you know, she's always like, well, whenever you want to do it, you can do it because she knows I've always provided, I've always made sure things were handled. So I'd established that trust in our relationship before we ever got to this point. And then of course there were the financial aspects of it. We sat down and, you know, people don't really do this enough. And, you know, it's like, sit down. It's like, what are actually, what are our payables every every month what's our monthly cost and what's our budget and what do we need and so we reached a point where i'd planned financially enough that i had a long enough cushion to essentially make no revenue and be okay and then if it doesn't work out i can pivot back into something else but you know now is the time for us to do it where you know i know i don't have to hit certain sales targets for at least like a year or year and a half before I even start getting a little bit worried, don't have any debt whatsoever. So we planned ahead for that. So in my situation, I would say I have it easier than some entrepreneurs that I didn't come into it in a do or die scenario. And because of that, I don't, I, or I do have the luxury of, of not really having to hard sell and kind of being a D bag about it and say, you should buy this because it's the best thing out there because I need to make rent next month. It's not like that for me. It's like, I'm going to take time to develop the offerings, develop the products, 
so that they're the best that they can be for, for my clients. And then I'm going to work with clients that want to work with me and I want to work with them. And, and so that was kind of the whole point of doing this. It's like, I want to do more stuff that I want to do and less of the stuff that I don't want to do. So if I mm -hmm. find myself in a situation where I'm trying to launch a business under duress, I'm just back to doing a lot of the stuff I don't want to do. Plus I have a lot more back office that I didn't have before. So what's the point, right? Yeah, for sure. What has been, so you're right, but you're right. Two or three months in now at this point? A little bit better than a quarter. Okay. What's been uh, your biggest, your biggest challenges, uh, things you look back on are like, oh, I, I should have done this differently. Do you have any of those? Um, I will say one that maybe I haven't fixed yet necessarily is um, the website. So before I kind of went public with the company, I, and I don't mean public company, but just marketing the company mm -hmm. openly, I was, I was so obsessed about the freaking website. And I know in truth that when I post a post every day, it's going to get more, it's going to get more hits than a lot of websites will in a month. And it's like, but I was just so wrapped around the, oh, I have to have a decent website for legitimacy. And I'm messing around on, on Squarespace and all this other stuff, trying to sort it out. I'm like, what's wrong with me? It's like, I have reach. I already have a Rolodex of clients. It's like, I'm just going to launch this thing so that they know I'm out there. And instead of calling a company that I work for, you know, maybe they're just giving me a call or whatever people from my past network. So I just set up a proper LinkedIn page for the company, cleaned up my own profile a bit and, and launched. And so I would say I still need to do a website. I want to make sure that I've been very conservative with CapEx, you know, and keep me, keeping my overhead low and making sure that I have positive revenues so that I'm never going to be beholden to anyone else with this thing. You know, so the, the VCs who are, who are pinging me, thank you, but no thanks right now. I'm going to try and <laughs> I'm going to try and do it on my own and have uh, complete, you know, creative control over, over the endeavor, because that's really the point. But, you know, so eventually, yeah, I probably need to get a proper website to legitimize it a little bit more and not be one of quote unquote, those companies that's only on Facebook or only on LinkedIn, but for right now it's fine. And then when I do it all, I'll, I'll invest properly and make sure it gets done the right way. And. It's I mean, honestly, some... though, the, the website is, is such a, just a, a nicety. Um, and yeah, <laughs> so many founders get stuck into the trap of busyness. <laughs> they have this nice long list of all the things that they need to do. Just like logo, business cards, website, getting pens and other swag and like all these things <laughs> that as they're checking them off, like, yeah, I'm, I'm making it as an entrepreneur. Look, there you go. Yeah. Like I, I, I've got my list of all these things that make me successful. And I feel like I'm knocking all these things off, but not a single one of them actually drives revenue or mm -hmm. really creates exposure. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure that in, in the consulting space, it's no different than the recruiting space where uh, I got my, my feet wet in, into entrepreneurship. I didn't have a website for a year and a half because I knew no one's going to go onto Google and be like recruiting help and then find down at the bottom of the list, this random one person recruiting shop that's been open for page six eight, months. page yeah. eight on Google. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> let, let, let me click the, I feel lucky button and see where, what, uh, what Google pops up with me. Uh, like no, no one's going to stumble upon my website and be like, these guys can recruit. I'm going to go hire them. It's just there as a, 
little bit added credibility that you are in business. Yes, some businesses need to have them. Like, hey, if you're if you're selling supplements or T-shirts and stuff like that, you need to have an order form, um, and that, that pro- they can process uh, purchases and stuff. Absolutely. But if you're in, especially in the service industry, mm-hmm. it, it's a, it's a nice to have. And so many founders get pulled into that trap of like, I need to do all these things that make me feel like I'm becoming an entrepreneur, as opposed to just picking up the phone, having phone calls with potential customers, talking with clients, building out the actual value proposition of like, all right, I'm not just going to have a a random phone call. I'm going to have a detailed list of what I can offer. If they're interested, here's how the process works that I'm actually going to make you better. Here's the end state. Those are the things that move the needle. Having a, a fancy website with some, you know, stock photos from Adobe, it just looks cool and makes you feel like you're you're a powerful entrepreneur. But really, you're just going to be just as broke as you were the day before. Well, I think that's really kind of the key to all of this is there's the perception of success that prevails, you know, on on the social medias and oh, they must be just crushing it in life because they're on vacation and you know they're wearing a nice suit and they've got a great website and it's like, yeah, but when you, when you have staying power, people can start to see the person that you really are through your daily interactions. And so it really starts to sort itself out. I think that that powerful entrepreneur, always successful, you know, always quote unquote crushing it, even though nobody crushes it every day, all the time, you know, you get those folks. And I think that they're able to capitalize on people who are like newer to the platforms. It's like, oh, well, they must be popular, whether they're backed by a pod or whether it's real engagement. So I better like them too. I better buy their course. I better buy their stuff. But then that's kind of what I was saying earlier. It's like, you know, my key demo, particularly for the LinkedIn offering and really the B2B stuff is a little bit independent of that is people who are in on the joke and have been in the game on like the platform for a while and kind of know some of the backstory of the, the things that really are. And like, those are the people that I want to work with. Like, you know, the realists that just kind of need some of the practical tools to operationalize and execute some of it to scale. No, that, that, yeah, that's, that's awesome. On. I think the, that my biggest flex is being able to play soccer with my son in the middle of the day today. Like that's like, to me, that mm-hmm. that's, that's it, man. I, I've made it and that's, that's good enough for me. Um, but yeah, you see so many of these content creators that are just, it's like, come on, man. And that's the that's, hustle that's, culture 24 seven grind. Right? Yeah, man. Um, and you know, that's one thing, obviously like Kevin, you and I are, are aligned on and stuff is like, and I was reading what was, so it's, is it's a heel bloom. I was listening mm-hmm. to a, a podcast with him the other day and it was like, it was talking about how basically in our culture, like it's completely back backwards. Like we have 10 years with our kids and those first 10 years, like there, you are the most important person to them. And then after that, they'll have their own friends. Uh, they'll go off to college, all of these different life milestones, and you're just going to be sort of like in the background. Um, but during those 10 years is also when we're supposed to be the most busy and like stacking dollars, making sure that we're grinding, you know, so it's, it's, it's completely backwards in my mind. And that's like something mm-hmm. that I'm trying to like really stay cognizant of because it is so easy to get so busy now, especially as an entrepreneur, like, it, like you can be busy around, you can find work, you can always find work as an entrepreneur. Um, and I'm really trying to stay mindful of that, especially as we've moved overseas and, you know, are dealing with like trying to get, trying to be there for like bedtimes and stuff like that. Cause I'm working late hours and stuff. So, 
Um, well, Greg, yeah, you're, you're going to start to see more of that too, where, you know, like you were talking about like the grind culture of the entrepreneur. And I would say very much American grind culture on top of it. So now if you're a gritty entrepreneur on top of American work culture, I mean, it, it reaches a point where it's untenable. So like, Greg, I definitely see it in your content. It's like where you're a real guy who's got real balance and you're not just trying to fall into the stereotypes of, you know, whatever franchise you're a part of. It's like you're just a guy who's mapping it out your own way of what works best for your family. And I think like with with your relocation recently and now you're in Europe, I think that that's kind of going to align very well with some of the your philosophies around, you know, how you're raising a family as well. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it fits in well. The, the the culture here is actually like pretty spot on. They're they're like super into community and mm-hmm. like they've been they've been celebrating this this thing called carnival for like I think I want to say like two months now. It's yeah. they celebrate they basically just like drink and eat for like two months straight, um, leading up to Lent. And it's like <laughs> the huge deal. My kid's got a week off of school next week. It's crazy. Uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 uh it's been a good move so far. How long are you guys planning on staying out there? I don't know. We'll see. TBD. Oh, so, it, so it's not like a uh, a military move where you have you know two year orders. Yeah, you can kind of stay like as long. Technically, as you... like yeah, we're technically in def over here. So oh, that's sweet. We can stay as long as we want. Yeah, I think we have to stay for three years if we want our move to be paid for. Um, but that's uh, that's like the only thing that's like tying us to to this location, I guess. That's that's pretty good situation have you know you don't have a, a timeline of like i need to get all this stuff done or fit all all these family trips in across europe by by this day yeah. um you can you can play it as a more enjoyable uh timeline yeah for sure for sure we're, i think we'll probably we're still like we're going to belgium next week we're still trying to get it all in <laughs> pretty quick <laughs> i still love how uh herb threw you under the bus of uh taking your wife to paris <laughs> It's like, yeah, but it's it's like next door for you guys. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, I was like, we were, we were, we were going to go to Paris and that's already changed. Uh, but yeah, he was like, that's like me going down to Baltimore. <laughs> so, so for context, Herb, Herb Thompson, uh, is it, he goes by Herb, right? Not Herb. Herb. Yeah. Yeah. Herb Thompson um, posted that Valentine's is coming up. So you better start planning something for your wife to, to make the year stress free and, and, and good. And Greg posted that he's taking his wife to Paris. And everyone's like, oh, my God, that's an amazing, amazing gift. You're so thoughtful. <laughs> such a good husband. And then Herb jumped in. He's like, no, no, no. He, he's in the Netherlands. That's like a hop, skip, and a jump away. Don't give him so much credit. Greg just picked up 10,000 followers off that comment. And then, and, then, and then Herb comes in and busts him out. Oh, Greg, you're the best. Uh, my response to him, my response to him was like, "Man, Herb coming in from the top rung, just dropping yeah. the people's elbow. Like, I will give you no satisfaction in your contribution." Uh, so, but, Tyler, uh, let's talk the uh, let's talk the Arrowhead, man. Oh, what a disaster! <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, so let me refrain. This year was a little bit less of a disaster than last year. So last year I got a training injury going in and I've still even got some sciatica from it, but I've got a bulging disc in my back or whatever. So I got hurt in training last year, still went into the race. Like my wife put on my boots for me cause I couldn't bend over, but, and it was, it wasn't quite record cold, but probably the second coldest arrowhead 
last year. So I real quick, real... can you give a little context to, to what the yeah. Arrowhead is? Yeah. So the Arrowhead 135 Winter Ultra is an ultra marathon of sorts, 135 miles in length that occurs in northern Minnesota. The starting line is right on the Canadian border in International Falls, and it happens every year. It's planned at the end of January going into February. So historically, they try and pick the the coldest the coldest days of the year in the coldest town in the contiguous U.S. So the whole point of it is that it's a cold race, right? So the, there are three main main ways of competing in this race. One is on foot with runners, but it's really people pulling sleds like mountaineering sleds. The mm-hmm. other is is cross country skis, which is kind of a smaller group, and then the other way is is fat tire bikes, so like float big fat bikes, right? And so, it was my first race ever. I qualified for the event. I'd sent in my mountaineering resume and said, "Well, you know, I can go out there and not die or whatever." There's kind of a process to getting accepted into this race, whether it's qualifying events for meaningful experience or whatever. So, I got into this race. It's my first bike race ever, not just in the winter ever. So last year I went out there and I ended up getting frostbite in my feet. You know, circulation is a real problem on the bikes where it's like runners go out there and they're in basically like insulated trail runners. And because you have circulation, you're moving, you keep everything flowing. Whereas on the bike, you kind of have the, even though it's a faster means to finish the race, you kind of have the added challenges of of one uh wind chill because it gets colder on the bike because you're moving faster but then two because you always have that constant pressure on the pedals it's like you really don't get circulation so you need to really level up like as far as your insulation ratings on your feet and things are concerned you know i wasn't quite prepared for that so i went into the arrowhead last year with um sciatica and injury and then also my boots weren't as good as they should have been so i ended up with frostbite and and medical dropping didn't lose any toes off of it so fast forward to this year a lot more prepared a lot better boots um, trained a lot more prudently for the event was able to shave some weight off my loadout so i mean i was probably pushing 85 pounds um last year with the full loadout with the bike and all the kit and everything strapped to it and i was probably a little bit closer to 75 this year maybe 70 but um That's a significant cut yeah, it's it's a significant cut, but when you're just pushing the bike, it still kind of adds up. It becomes a paperweight. Mm-hmm. So in any case, this year, unseasonably warm winter for a lot of the country, as you guys probably know as well. So this year, high temperatures during the event were around 40 degrees. So literally like an 80 plus degree swing from last year. So the Arrowhead Trail is a snowmobile trail in the wintertime, and in the summertime, it's not a trail at all. So when there's no snow accumulated, it's not groomed. It's basically, it's basically a combination of like foothills and then marshlands. So that's really what a lot of the trail was where it hadn't been groomed. So you're out there literally pushing in a foot, foot of slushy snow that hadn't been touched before, um, open water, all these other things. And so the going was a lot slower this year. And I ended up having a few crashes like into the evening. Once you get like a little bit more delirious and stuff like that. So I had a few crashes and my bike was down to single speed. So I was doing a lot of walking with the bike and pushing up hills and then riding the bike down hills. And, and so I reached a point like, you know, I was probably 18, 20 hours in. It's like, well, I'm going to lay out in the 
I was starting to get like a little bit defeated um, mentally. So it's like, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and set up Bivy in the woods and try and sleep off the hangover and see what happens. So I did that and then got up the next day and started again. Conditions were a little bit better, but I was still on a single speed bike. And so, you know, I ended up pushing the bike a few miles. It's like, well, I'm not, you know, I was about at the halfway point, really. It's like, I know I don't have the juice to, to push it like another 70 miles. And if I and I couldn't get the bike fixed, it's like, okay. So I came out of it this year. I didn't finish. I'd make, I'd made it a little bit further than the year prior. Um, and I wasn't injured or anything like that. So it was still incremental improvement, but yeah, obviously you want to finish and say, I crushed it because I crush life all the time. And sometimes <laughs> that's just not what happens. The adversity snowball got a little bit too big for me. So I had to eat some humble pie and then you know, just kind of AAR it, you know, regroup, refit, and then figure out what's next. I mean, that, those are significant changes. I mean, g going from, you know, expecting to be cruising along snow, even if you can pack it in or not, uh, and then having to push a bike over swampy marshland, uh, especially with it being so much warmer, you know, you might even have been overpacked with, with gear. And now you're, it's almost a yeah. completely different race at that point. Well, and some of it too is a lot of that gear is required gear. Like you have to have like two cans of fuel. You have to have a heater. You have to have a negative 20 sleeping bag. You have to have a bivy. You have to have all these things that are required gear. So even mm -hmm. if you're willing to gamble on some of the nice to haves, like as far as layers and things like that, there's still a good bit of prerequisite weight that you just need to have there. And, you know, it kind of disrupts your systems a little bit. And the one thought I had too, when I decided to pull over and bivy that, that night and try and sleep it off and get my mind right again is I was falling so much that I'm like, okay, I'm still in this. I just need to take a breather and take a knee and kind of get my mind right. And at the same time, it's like, you know, if I snap a collarbone out here and then I'm trying to bivy or get comms and I don't have comms and I don't have a satellite phone and all this other stuff, it's like, it could turn an inconvenience into a real problem. And it's mm -hmm. like, is this really worth the real problem? It's like, you know, you guys know this, you know, better than I do probably and better than most people, you know, that listen in that, you know, there are going to be those situations where you have real problems and you don't have a choice, but just to try and deal with it and triage as best you can. But it's like, you know, I'm, I'm nearing 44 years old. And it's like, is this really one of those situations for me? And the answer is no, it really wasn't. So. Yeah, those are tough decisions to make, especially when it's when it's your your pride or your ego at mm -hmm. stake. You're like, I know what the answer is, but I don't want to make that answer or you know public, publicly make that decision. Um, mm -hmm. Then it feels like I'm quitting, especially if there's a bunch of people that that knew you were going to be doing this, and you have to go back and explain to them however many times that this whole situation of I was falling, the bike was broken, I, didn't, I couldn't push through it, I had all this stuff, uh, and you're just going through your, in in your mind all. All the people you're going to have to explain what happened, why you didn't Tyler, finish it. This is perfect, though, because now you can just send in this recording. You can be like, hey, I explain it here. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, Watch this and episode. And, and quite honestly, I mean, you know, I've become pretty adept at damage control because I do bite off more than I can chew regularly. And I'm also pretty honest by nature. So I'll just put it out there and share. It's like, I'm, I'm going to tackle this big hairy goal. Am I qualified? Maybe not, but we're going to give it a shot and see what happens. So, you know, every now and then I have to do these posts after the fact and say, well, <laughs> Hey, now that you guys all know about this and this is crush it call, sir, guess who didn't crush it again. But 
you know, I, I've kind of taken to saying I, I came here, I came here and, and started doing social media in my 40s, trying to develop like a preparedness and adventure brand. And it turned into a satirical misadventure brand <laughs> where I'm trying to do these things. But it's it's almost like it organically came into being of what it really is, because like if if we looked like to the the military genre in general, and I would say even really the the soft the soft genre and how that's developed on social media, there's this kind of Gen One typecast of you know Jocko's wonderful has a big following, but it's kind of the I wake up at four a.m. I'm always in the ice bath and I'm always doing these things and I'm always totally on point. But there are a lot of us that you know came from whether it was soft community or just, you know, conventional, conventional military community that, you know, he did some of those things too, but we're kind of more along the, the normal, the normal person area of the bell curve. And so I, I'd like to think that I'm a guy that's very much probably a, a dead center bell curve guy, but I've managed to kind of find my way into the leading edge, you know, even though I'm not successful a lot, but I'm, it, I think it still gives people hope to endeavor that you don't have to be of, you know, exceptional talent or the, the hardest athlete anywhere, the most, you know, mentally strong person, but, you know, get out there and try some of these things and endeavor and, and be willing, be willing to not only build publicly, but also fail publicly. And it's like, well, this mm -hmm. is kind of a, a normal dude in Minnesota who's got an okay resume, but it's not great, but he's out there trying stuff and, you know, if he fails, it's not like he's going to get canceled tomorrow. So why not? Well, I think that's really important for society to see that not only is it, is it normal to fail, but it's, it's good. And to mm -hmm. put it out there publicly, I think a lot of people are get get a breath of fresh air about, you know, what, what failing actually means. You, know, you, you went into the first arrowhead expecting to finish and you, you got frostbite. You're like, All right, this is what I'm going to have to do next year to do better. And mm -hmm. then this year's happened and you had these new issues. So you weren't, you weren't repeating the same mistakes. Not like you got frostbite again and had to bail out because you didn't have the right gear again. It's like, no, this year was a very different race. And this is why I failed this year. So going forward, right. I now know there's the cold and then there's what happens when it's too warm or, or when the, when the train's broken, maybe you're like, I'm going to have to learn how to fix gears next year so I can do that on the fly. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so it's, it's always failing forward. You failed, but you learned how to be better and you're not making those same mistakes again. And, and a really, you know, the old adage that, that, that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. It's like, yeah, but why? Mm -hmm. And it's like, and we all don't need to be the apex tip of the spear guy or gal to go out there and lead an exceptional life. And I, in fact, I think a lot of people do the unex that are successful are able to do the unexceptional exceptionally well. So I, I just try and fall into that categories where, you know, I'm not particularly talented or, or anything like that. I've never been the best at anything, but, you know, I dabble in a lot of stuff. So I get a lot of experiences. And I think that that rounds me out and makes for an interesting story that, you know, kind of tying it back into the business aspect of this that, you know, I, although I don't have a marquee background, I've done a lot of interesting stuff because I've been a able or willing to put myself out there and had exposure to a lot of exceptional people that I've learned from as a result of being kind of mediocre, but being, you know, willing to, again, you know, step into the arena and, and fail often. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember who, whose posts it was I saw, but it was, it was basically, uh, oh, it was um, Jason Van Camps. He was talking about a oh, buddy. Yeah, he's like, uh, 
entrepreneurs need to be stupid or dumb. I think is what word to use. <laughs> they need to be dumb in the sense that they're going to try stuff that they know is stacked against them. He used the analogy of walking into a casino, knowing that the odds are stacked against you. And you're still like, Nope, I'm going to walk out of here with a butt ton of money. He's like the mm -hmm. smart guys. They're the ones that did well in school and they went to Harvard and they got a job at BCG and they're getting, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, mm -hmm. but they're boring because this mm -hmm. is like, they're just another cog in the wheel in corporate America where he's like, I'm worth 10 times their, their value now because I was too dumb to, to go that route. And so I went to the entrepreneurship side where I know the odds were stacked against me and I came out on top because I just kept, I kept pushing through and pushing through. I was too dumb to quit. Um, and my response to that was, I was basically how I got through buds. You know, I was, I was too dumb to quit seal training. It's like, I, mm -hmm. I don't know what else I'm going to do. Uh, I want to see what's on the other side. I'm just going to keep going a little bit more. It's just, it, 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 you keep going forward. Um, so you don't need to be the, the best or the smartest. And oftentimes because mm -hmm. they're the best or the smartest, they go down this track that, that is almost laid out before them. It's the easy, it's the easy answer because they get comfortable. Um, and so they don't, they don't venture off into, into the unknown and, and become a, a story other people want to hear. Perfect. And so I talk about that with clients quite a bit. And it's like people get stuck into the pipeline of expectation of what they're supposed to do, you know, whether it's their family business or whether they get into a certain career track in the military, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this. And I think it's the same thing on the corporate side too. It's like, well, you get in as a junior consultant, then a consultant, then maybe your partner and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, one of the things that I like to tell like clients that I work with and on the content side, but really in general, just for like career mapping in life as well as, you know, don't worry so much about the storyline and, and quote unquote, niching down, worry about your character development, develop mm -hmm. a strong character that you believe in that people relate to and they can invest in. And once you do that, you have unlimited storylines and you don't need to niche. Like, I don't come to LinkedIn any single day saying, well, I need to write about SEO or I need to write about, you know, story arc Please or whatever. Don't. It's like, yeah, it's like, I just write about whatever I want to. And, and I'll, and I'll share something with you guys. And, you know, I posted about it a little bit yesterday and LinkedIn, the algorithm didn't like the post, but it was kind of about the, the Joe Rogan arc. And it's like, everyone thinks, well, you know, Rogan was an overnight success and the reality he, he wasn't. And I think a lot of people you know, they look to recent, you know, whether he's controversial because he said this or that or whatever. If you look back to the beginning, he basically capitalized on podcasting super early when it was mm -hmm. just kind of a dumb idea, no expectation to monetize it or really do anything with it. Just got on a mic and, and talked with, with his friends about whatever they wanted to talk about. And you see, he's been able to do that to a point where, you know, he gets 190 million downloads every single month. It's it's the biggest podcast in the world. And the guy literally talks to whomever and whatever he wants to talk about. And, and, you know, people tune in for some, some people listen to every episode. I don't, but it's like, I can look and see the guests that I want to listen to. And I know that mm -hmm. there's some continuity with him. And so he's the perfect example of someone who didn't niche into character roles. He just said, this is who I am. I'm going to stay with it and develop it and we'll see what happens with it. Oh, he did it is perfectly. Everyone, yeah. Is everyone going to be Joe Rogan big? No, absolutely no. not. But at the same time, it gives people some context. It's like, well, 
you know, maybe you can do some of that stuff, you know, within your industry, whether it's like med tech recruiting or, you know, whether it's within security consulting and, and, or, you know, whatever that, whatever your, I'll say broader niche happens to be, but you don't have to be fixed to a certain pipeline. And I'll say even my, my military career is a, is a perfect example of, I did not follow the pipeline guidance at all. And I've kind of had a little bit of a weirdo career, but I still retired in the end and I'm proud of what I did. Yeah, I was reading an article recently on on Joe Rogan. Um, you know, now that we're in the podcast space, you, you start doing some research on other people and, and someone mentioned it wasn't an article about him, but they brought him up saying, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a ding against Joe Rogan. I absolutely love him. I've seen his stand up uh, live, but they basically were like, he was a mediocre comedian. Like, he was good. He, yeah. had, he had a couple minor specials, but he wasn't he wasn't Dave Chappelle. He wasn't some of these other guys that were household names across the board, but he had a uh, a diverse profile of people that that he was interacting with so he had he had the military or the the martial art background um he was a comedian he was uh, a big proponent of uh, psychedelics and and weed and stuff like that and he wasn't afraid to talk about those things and if you if you look back at the early episodes it was like him shooting the shit with other comedians that he liked smoking weed with and it was just nonsense but they would just record yeah. it and put it out there because people enjoyed hearing what some of those guys talked about and then they just kept getting more and more. And as you said, he he got in early, so he has early you know early starter advantage, um, mm -hmm. or early adopter advantage. But you know he stuck to it, and he what he does brilliantly is he plays the basically the the meathead layman with all the conversation. He doesn't pick sides. He doesn't pretend like he knows what the <clears throat> the the guest is talking about, especially when he has. Uh, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson or somebody. Coming yeah, he on. says, I, I'm an idiot. He's like, I'm an idiot. I don't understand this. And like, explain I this to me like I'm a child. Yeah. He asked the questions that we're all thinking, though, or that most of us are thinking. He's a great question asker. That's, I think mm -hmm. that's like what he's probably really developed over his time as, a, as well as public speaking. He's obviously a, a, a pretty good public speaker as well because he's from his time as a comedic comic comedic comic uh comic so it's yeah, he's, all uh, the same yeah it's it's all the same yeah <laughs> um so i think that's really where he like he's probably gained the most skill is is being is asking the right questions and not giving mm -hmm. a shit you know about sounding stupid or anything like that he's just like is genuinely a pretty seems like a genuinely pretty curious guy yeah, yeah i mean he's he's asking the questions that all of us mouth breathing listening to his podcast yes. We want to know too. It's like, duh, I don't know. Can you? And he asked the question. Like, thanks, thanks. Neil, can you yeah. explain the, the the cosmos to us? Because I'm an idiot. But but you know, to that end too, he was very early in that regard too, where he wasn't like the the crushing it all the time influencer. Mm -hmm. Like he talks about when he's down. He talks about when he fails. He talks about things where he's not as versed on a subject as as you know, people would like him to be, or he should be or whatever. And I mean, he's a real person that's navigating it in real time. And I think that's where, you know, folks like, like you guys, and I'd like to think myself and, and others, even through our much smaller platforms are able to say, it's like, yeah, I've, I've had a good run and I've got some value to offer the community. But at the same time, it's like, I have my down days and I screw up just like everyone else. And Hopefully you'll you'll have some grace and I'll do better tomorrow. For for sure. With, with that, um, I'd love for you to jump back a little bit. You know, talk about your your time in the military. Uh, I think in there, it, you, you said that 
you, know, you did some reserve time, so you, you have it broken with, with active duty reserves and you're jumping back and forth with corporate space yeah. and, and the military. Yeah. So I, I dabbled quite a bit. So, you know, I did my first four years active duty. Um, I've been a career engineer. I hold a multiple engineering MOSs, largely around the maneuver side, digging tanks, mobility, counter mobility, survivability. So I was kind of been, you know, within the combat arms space more than like the construction side of, of things, but, you know, never went quite as far as to like the tip of the spear stuff. But so I did four years active duty. And then I had the plan. It's like, well, I'm going to get out, go to college. Then I'll go to OCS and I'll go back in and be an officer. But then of course you get out into the world, stuff happens. So I was in the national guard and this was kind of, so I got in pre nine 11 and mm -hmm. when there wasn't quite a lot of stuff happening. Nine 11 happens. You know, I ended up doing a tour on the Korean border and then went into the national guard and eventually the reserves, but you know, the the op tempo was so high by that point, even with like National Guard and reservists and National Guard in particular, because the dirty little secret is that when you're not deploying for federalized mobilizations to Iraq and Afghanistan, you're probably getting deployed for state stuff or other state stuff. So it's like, even though my first four years was active, I like to say that for all intents and purposes, between guard bumming, between deployments, and then also PME um, MOS qualifications, all this other training. I was really active duty doing it for a living for like the first nine years of my career. And I ended up getting onto a, an Iraq deployment that I had volunteered for um, with the Corps of Engineers. And I guess even a little bit before that, I was at Hurricane Katrina and I'd seen as well, where I'd seen uh, private military contractors like, you know, back in the day, Blackwater and stuff like that. And then ended up doing some work like in Iraq. I did some reconnaissance work where I managed a lot of my movements was like through Aegis and Irenes. So a couple of, of UK based um, private military companies and, you know, started working with some of those former SAS guys and Royal Marines, and then also tier one operators from the U S military. And I started thinking to myself, it's like, well, this would be pretty kind of, you know, this would be pretty cool to kind of explore that space a little bit more. So it actually reached a point where, you know, I wanted to try doing the paramilitary thing just to see what it was like. And, and I ended up um, getting onto a contract in Afghanistan in a bed advisory role um, with the Afghan army doing combat engineer demolitions, mission planning type of stuff for, for what a year battalion. Was that? Or, uh, nine, 10. Okay. So right, right as we're getting back into Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. So nine, 10, and I, you know, I spent a little bit of time like up around Kabul and then a, a bulk of the time, you know, I live with the ANA um, down in the Kandahar area as well and embedded with them and, and doing stuff. And, and so that was a situation where I coordinated like with my national guard unit at the time. It's like, okay, can I do a bunch of drills on the front end or do a bunch of drills on the back end or come home on vacation and do drills. And then also I, you know, I'm on a, a DOD sponsored contract. And so, although I'm not here drilling right now, I'm in Afghanistan operating in a sense. So I was able to do that. And the funny thing is I right before that contract, I had a slot to go to the Sapper leaders course, which is like the engine in the engineering world. It's the equivalent of going to Ranger school for like an infantryman. So you get your tab out of it and all that cool stuff. And so I had a slot to go in about that time is when I got picked up for this contract. And it's like, well, I need the money. 
And it's like, so I needed to kind of prioritize. And that's where I kind of broke from pipeline a little bit as well. And I knew that it would probably kind of hinder my military career a little bit, but it's like, yeah, but this is something a little bit different too. And there's a level of flex that comes along with, okay, I come back every now and then I drill. It's like, well, what do you do? Why isn't Afghanistan working or whatever? So there's still ways to kind of leverage those alternative pathways. But, and plus that started giving me exposure into like the commercial aspects of providing whether it's military support or security support as a service. So I started mm -hmm. getting a little bit more into like, what's the back office admin? It's like, how are you planning billable hours and productive time? You know, you're not going to have private military companies that have 300 people sitting in an auditorium for three hours waiting for a presentation because the projectors broke. That'll happen in the army. That will never happen in the PMC or the commercial world. So those <laughs> oh, are the sure. types of things that you start to see as well. And so that gave me a sense for, you know, what is the business of the military? And then eventually, what is the business of security? And so that's where I was able to pivot into corporate consulting, because now I'm a guy that, you know, has a decent enough military background with some good experience that's reputable, plus the paramilitary side. So I kind of understand the commercial aspects of, of how to provide a service like that in a non-permissive environment. And so I was able to pivot that into corporate work to where now I consider myself, you know, a business person that used to be in the military, but it's kind of took an, an unconventional path, but it was able to get me the result that, that I needed. Mm -hmm. so, so I got to ask, you've, you've been to two very unique spots. Um, explain to me how different Afghanistan was, which, I mean, people can kind of get an idea what, what a war zone looks like versus uh -huh. Hurricane Katrina, which I think a lot of people don't realize how bad new orleans was uh yeah at the height of the flooding is it basically anarchy down there so yeah the relationship of, of organized wartime space versus anarchy essentially <laughs> um peacekeeping mission in, inside the u.s so i'll i'll preface this by saying that my time in the military, I have been lucky on a few occasions as far as operations go but i'll never say that I, I wasn't the most pipe hitting guy in mm -hmm. the army. Like, you know, I had, I had good deployments, but you know, I, I wasn't a rock star and, and I, and I was, I was probably on the edge of the spear somewhere, but far from the tip of it, I would say. So, so that's my context coming in, but, you know, I kind of put a level of continuum then between like major things that I've been a part of. So like the Korean border, it helps you really get like the fundamentals kind of right and, and get tight as far as, you know, troop leading and, and planning for mission and particularly around like time hacks and making movement to go and fight and those types of things. Then from there, it was Iraq. And, you know, it was my first time, you know, being in quote unquote combat, putting on the combat patch and going and doing recce and all this other stuff. And so then I thought I had it all figured out. And then I went to Afghanistan as a paramilitary and it's like, one, you're buying your own tickets, you're flying commercial air, you're trying to figure all this stuff out. And it's not as glamorous as you would think sometimes. It's like, yeah, maybe I get to wear a little bit cooler clothes, but it's kind of the same stuff and, and with a little less support. You know, you don't you're, have you're eating air. the same shitty food. 
Yeah, yeah. And you and, and when you go outside the wire, you don't have air and you don't have fires. Like mm-hmm. those are those are a couple of the big ones. So you need to mind your P's and Q's a little bit better. So if you think so if you think mercenaries are out there trying to pick a fight, that is not true. It's like you 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 are the most polite person in the battle space by far, especially when you get when you get outside of the the wire. So when I got to Afghanistan, then it's like I thought I had it all figured out. It's like, I'm a grizzled veteran or whatever. I'm a senior NCO, all this other stuff. And I get there. I'm like, this place is a dump. Like it was like, you're literally going back into the stone age. And it's like, I thought from Iraq to Afghanistan, I had it figured out. It's like, this is levels of magnitude more complex as far as conducting operations and then having support for anything. And now kind of going back to your original question, sorry for the segue, Kevin. No, please. That was perfect. So, so Hurricane Katrina, I have a very unique perspective of it. So my first unit in the National Guard after I'd separated from active duty, I got into a school down in Louisiana. I'd been stationed at Fort Polk, so got back from Korea, just stayed there, went to school, was in a National Guard unit there. And the National Guard unit I was in got popped for a state um, quick reaction force. So anywhere in the state within hours, and I'll date myself a little bit, we were carrying like the little government issued beepers back then where if the beeper went off you just went to the armory you already had an a bag and a b bag that were already there locked up and pre-staged packs so you just get in your vehicle and you go you have your shaving kit and all that stuff that's there and ready to go so the year prior we had a similar operation down in new orleans during hurricane ivan where they thought that hurricane ivan might hit new orleans and um so we ended up occupying the Superdome for that as for company size element for this QRF there for a few days, took in maybe a couple thousand people shelter, a last resort storm didn't hit New Orleans, no big deal. Right. So we actually had a dry run of that operation the year prior. And I don't think a lot of people know that. I mean, it's in the public domain, but people just mm-hmm. don't pay attention to that stuff. So fast forward a year, um, the beeper goes off. Uh, we go to the armory. We're down in New Orleans the next day. So I was at the Superdome prior to landfall um, of Katrina. So we were there to kind of take folks in. And then, you know, you hear all the stuff on the media about, you know, kind of the living conditions and trying to manage it. And then, you know, to your point, you know, your your lines of communication as far as mobility it cut off because everything gets flooded. So you can't get people in or out. Um, even with high Ford trucks, it's like it was too high at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and boats have limitations as well. So you have that element of it. There's a very clear socioeconomic aspects to it all, which, you know, is the same thing with wars. It's like poor people always suffer. I mean, that's yeah. the sad reality of the situation. And New Orleans was the same thing in that situation. It's like where poor people suffer. So in some ways, it's like, well, was there was there opportunistic criminality? Sure, absolutely there was. There was also just a lot of human desperation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks who, you know, weren't equipped for it. I mean, at the time I was a I'll say a kid, a twenty five year old kid, you know, four hours before I'd been sleeping in my bed and I was a National Guard guy trying to go to college and, and get a degree. And all of a sudden I had a heavy squad. I had thirteen guys in a squad. I'm a twenty five year old guy. And now, you know, we, you know, we have weapons and ammo and, you know, we're loaded up and we're in New Orleans. It's like, oh, this is kind of bizarre. So when you're sitting there as a 25 year old with, you know, a group of guys with saucer eyes looking at you 
and you're trying to go over rules of engagement, I mean, you know, you have to really be deliberate about how you're communicating with people. And I said, you know, look, guys, we have to take this in for the whole breadth of what it is. It's like, you know, this is hard for us and we're trained for this. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. of people that aren't trained for this. And there's a lot of people that didn't have anything when this happened to them. And now they have even less that it's happened to them. And we've been trained and volunteered to be here. And I mean, you know, we were going without water and food for days as, as well. But, um, I mean, these people was thrust upon them. So it's like, so you need to consider that if you see someone, you know, that's quote unquote looting or all these other things that were being uh, sensationalized, it's like, these are our people. And it's like, you need to be very cognizant of if you decide to send a, a round down range, that it is for a, a reason of, of, of saving life only. And even then mm-hmm. it's like, you, you need to be really considerate of that. So on the on the scale of, of, of hairy operations or campaigns, it's kind of weird for me to talk about, but you know, New Orleans for me was next level from absolutely anything else that I've ever experienced because there was that bizarre feeling of it. And it was so expeditionary for what it was. And it's like, I'm here in my own country, but we are a million miles away from anything. And like, particularly when the operation was still a, a state run operation. I mean, there was like no air assets, you know, the state, the city government, the state government, the national guard were trying to figure out how to get people in. We were trying to get resupply again. I went days without food and water and, and, you know, so did my boys. So did everyone else involved and a lot of people suffered. And then when, when the operation federalized, it's like a, a switch flip. And it's like, there was a time they were saying like, after the operation federalized the, the, the airspace over New Orleans, it was, there were more, there were more rotary wing aircraft in the air over New, New Orleans, the city proper than in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. And like, oh, wow. so I was sleeping in, you know, I was sleeping with, you know, our company area, we'd pushed out of the Superdome by that point. And so we're sleeping out on a parking ramp, just kind of to the edge of the Superdome. And we're like a layer down from the top. And we remember when, you know, planes or when choppers started landing on the hard deck and, and dropping like cargo and then like Russell Henry showing up and chewing people out and all, all this other stuff. And, you know, at the same time, it's like you have your families that are watching this stuff on the news and, you know, you have your families without electricity because the hurricane hit them too. Right. And then they can't get in touch with you because telecom was gone. And so like, I've tried to take that experience and, and apply it to like emergency and emergency and business continuity planning as well and say, you know, we, we kind of, we're kind of back in these situations. And like, now it's like, you know, civil war is kind of like the big thing. It's like, well, how do we plan for continuity around that? It's like, well, we kind of have a blueprint from new Orleans of like, Take a take the worst case scenario where you take away basic human services, you take away mobility, you take away comms, you take away all those things. It's like that's the template that we start planning from, even though it was nearly twenty years ago now. Sorry, I got a little long on time. No, there, you're, but, you're good. I yeah. mean, I, I can't remember where I, where I heard it, but it was basically um, society lives on a very fine line, and that fine line is electricity. If, if you take that away, it, things crumble real quickly. Um, and I also heard someplace that society is held together by three meals. Once people go three meals, or go without for three meals, 
things start breaking down real quickly. <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, that's basically you know, I, what, you know, go on. I was going to say, so I think it, some of it's dependent upon the fabric of a, the community that it affects too. I think the you start to get into larger communities where there's a little bit more anonymity. I think that's where it even amplifies it further, you know, mm-hmm. to your point with like the three meals or you take away telecom. So if you take away people's cell phones, if you take away people's food and they can't move around anymore and they can't get away from it, I mean, that's an instant recipe for like a Mad Max world. Then you start to see the worst of people pretty quickly. So if there were people that were predisposed for opportunism, you're going to see it. You're going to see it work itself out pretty quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's not that necessarily the people there are bad. It's at some point your, your fight or flight um, mentality kicks in and you're like, I need to survive. I can see this isn't getting any better. I need to take care of, of me and my family. Um, especially in, as you said, in a, a city like new Orleans, which is a couple million people, they mm-hmm. don't know each other. They have, mm-hmm. they have, you know, sports commonalities and some culture commonalities, but they don't actually know each other. So if you get into the more rural spaces, you know, they have churches and, and community stuff where everyone knows one another, they know their first names, they know their kids, they know their parents that grew up with them. But if you're in a big city, you're, the anonymity among people is is staggering. Like I know a lot of people that, that don't know their neighbors if they live in high rise buildings. Mm-hmm. Well, and the density on top of it. So when you take a city and you basically cordon it off and say, "All right, here's a worst case situation," and also nobody can get away from it, and you can't communicate with anyone outside of it, it's like the resources that are there are gone pretty quickly. Whereas mm-hmm. I think you get into a smaller community people kind of figure out how to share and barter and have food. And maybe they do a potluck and people bring their tractor, they're filling sandbags and all this other stuff. Whereas in these big cities, it's like one, you don't know anybody. And two, the resource drain be just because of the population density, it just moves so quickly. So everyone can say, well, our city will come together. You get a couple million people in a city, you cut it off from, you cut it off from the world to where they can't communicate with the outside world. So there's misinformation, there's disinformation, there's, there's a resource drain. It's what, what was the Batman movie where they kind of took some cues from a lot of different things. They took some cues from like the, you know, Blackwater tragedy, but then they also took some cues from like New Orleans when um, they cut the city off basically. Mm -hmm. Right. So they took a lot of those social cues and that and said, you know, this is kind of what happens. Like if, if we let our society get, get so fragile that we can't help each other out, it's like, as, as soon as there's any sort of an adversity snowball, we all start falling apart and turning on each other. For sure. So funny that we're talking about this today because I was literally watching, I was, I was doom scrolling on Instagram and there was this guy was, it was pretty hilarious. He was like, he was just talking about how the whole buzz right now is a civil war in the U S it's like Americans are way too lazy to wage a civil war. My buddy's going to be texting me seeing if I'm coming to the fight and I'm going to tell them, no, sorry guys. I'm, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to hand back today, but I'm thinking to my, and I was thinking about this during just like throughout the day. I was like, I mean, that's hilarious, but then they start taking away like your food and then you can't text people and people will literally go fucking insane. They yeah. will lose their minds and, and it won't take long. You take away people's phones and their ability to communicate with people via Wi-Fi or in, like it's people will lose their ever loving minds quickly. Yeah. Like, let, the, let, let the servers for the socials go down for a day and, and see what yeah. happens on top of being hungry. Like, you know, I, I, 
I think like the first time Facebook ever went down, like I heard stories and I don't know if it's true or not, but like people literally calling 911 because Facebook was down. Right. No, no. I've got real world examples of this. So in in my um, pre-SEAL life, I was a communication officer in the Marine Corps. So I've done both the uh, support service and the the tip of the spear side. Um, And in Afghanistan, they have, uh, well, pretty much anywhere, they have different classification ratings for different networks. You know, you have your your secret network and then your Mm -hmm. non-secure Sipper uh, nipper, network. all that good yep. stuff. Yeah. For for the, for the people that aren't familiar with sipper nipper, you know, it's it's the secret, you know, top secrets or not top secret. There's, there's the secret side, and then just the, the unclass side where you, know, you can go on Google and all that stuff. We would have the secret side server, and they're completely separated, you know, air gapped. We'd have the secret side go down for hours, and I was at the command that was managing the entire base. It was like ten thousand people at Camp Leatherneck, um, and the entire Southwest Region headquarters was there. So the secret network where they're doing all like the operation planning stuff would be down. No one would say anything for a while, like hours. The the non-secure side that had the share drive where all the movies and stuff were, that was down for five minutes. People, fr- people from the tactical operations center, like the highest headquarters uh, operation center on, in the country, were like, hey, we, we noticed the, the share drive is down. We're like, yeah, they're both down. Um, you guys are just noticing it because you can't get to your, your free movies that, that we've had out there. Um, and so like, <laughs> if pe- people just want to have that, that mind-numbing stuff, you know, social media, the internet, Netflix. Um, and that's why we're such a docile society because we have so much stuff that can just numb the mind and you kind of space out. Uh, if you start taking that stuff away and people realize what's going on, um, I think that things would, would escalate a lot quicker. Yeah, I mean, co- content is is in a way it's it's kind of like the the opium for the masses of of the mm-hmm. modern era era. So you know, as as three you know as three content creators sit here and talk about it, but I think it's a, <laughs> I think it's important to be cognizant of it, right? It's like you know, there's some values to it, but don't let it become your whole life, and don't be a cyborg to it, and be able to to you know use the trope, but unplug and and do stuff that has nothing to do with it as well. And and again, that's kind of just dabbling in other things and being well-rounded. It's like, you know, use it for the strategic, uh, the strategic communications enabler that it is, but don't let it become your whole identity. Right. Well, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that we're, we're content creators and we, we're making stuff to put out there. Mm-hmm. Don't be a consumer. Don't just sit back and, and let all this information wash over you actually go out there, put yourself on, on a limb and, and scare yourself a little bit by putting yourself out there, be vulnerable, put information out that, you know, put, put knowledge out there that, you know, and, and see what the response is. Don't mm-hmm. just listen to what everyone else is saying and let them form your thoughts. Take, take some right. time to, to create your own thoughts. Yeah. Have a, have a voice in, in the discussion and, and even in the discourse, you know, do it respectfully, of course, and don't be a bully and a troll and all that, but you know, a little bit of discourse is a, and some alternative views are a good thing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so especially what, with, what, I mean, the way, no, go let's on. just say, especially with all the way that like the algorithm is and stuff like that, it's literally feeding you what you want to see. You know, it, they've, they've got it down to a science where like you are, it's an echo chamber. You're only hearing from the same voices every single day. It's, I mean, you really have to be, you have to be very deliberate about seeing the alternative views nowadays. Um, I'm always, I'm always trying to be mindful of that and I'm not great at it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's, it it's is true. Tough. You you invent a you kind of inadvertently direct like an unintended pod because you know of course you know if you only need a thousand screaming fans to to make it in this world and that's probably true you don't need to have a million people that love you and you're not going to be for everyone but you know at the same time it's like make sure that you're branching out and and keep, keeping your viewfinder on panoramic so you don't miss out on some of those other things that are you know kind of out there but just you know again getting into the echo chamber and you know, all of a sudden you're the, the guy who thinks you're cool and has it all figured out. It's like you're you're really just kind of limited in your mindset and, you know, which limits your opportunities then, right? And it's cascading effect. For sure. So what's on the horizon for you? What What's the next thing for, for Tyler? What's the next thing for, for Winsley? Um, what, yeah. what, what would you like to see everything grow into? Well, so I like that you use the term grow. So I'm a gardener, so I'm excited for the spring. But um, to that end, too, I think that everything kind of has its seasons. So like a lot of, you know, I would say from from me, you know, and misadventure content, the next thing is probably starting to ramp up again for probably a, a spring or summer climb on Mount Rainier. But I won't really be doing with a, a lot with that for a little while. But I've always got objectives in that donate domain but you know for the next quarter it's really going to be focusing on on scaling up the linkedin trade craft and getting that out to people who who want it and can benefit from it and then continuing to build the b2b side of the consulting business um so that's really what's happening on the winsley side and, and the adventure side and then you know again just trying to explore and meet new and interesting people and and see what i can learn from them and and hopefully add a little bit of value in those relationships as well Heck yeah. We'll drop the, uh, we'll drop the, the link to, do you, do you have a link to the, um, your course? So it's not an online course. So okay. it's, 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 a it's instructor. Yeah. Yeah. It's cohort style. So, um, if, if people are interested in, in doing a discovery call and learning more about it, the pricing and kind of what it covers, then feel free to schedule an appointment with me. My appointment link is right in my LinkedIn profile. Um, I also have a, a Winsley page on LinkedIn that kind of goes into a little bit more detail about what the unique offerings and, or, you know, if you just want to shoot me a DM and we can schedule a call old school, then that works too. I'm, I'm pretty easy and pretty accessible. Yeah. So that's Tyler Schmoker, S-C-H-M-O-K-E-R. And the, the company one. is Winsley, W-I-N-S-L-Y. Uh, no, he's def definitely give him a follow. You you won't regret having that that pop up in your um, in your feed every day. If you, if you well, go you, ahead and you might depending on who you are, but <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, not. unfollow me if you regret it. <laughs> there you go. If you don't like it, don't listen to him. If you do, keep clicking like so it keeps popping up. You use the algorithm to your advantage, where where uh, you can have that give you a little bit of a smile each morning. You post pretty much every day, don't you? Yeah, pretty much. I think I've already yeah, got a, a I've already got an, a, a title for this episode. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. What do you think? <laughs> perfect, perfect. Well, I love it, especially as it comes to seeing someone in ranger panties. Yeah. <laughs> hey, who, who who wears short shorts? I wear short shorts. <laughs> well, awesome, Todd. We really appreciate you you being on the show. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we sign off? No, just thanks so much for the opportunity, guys. You know, this was a really cool conversation.